Good afternoon, Memorial Baptist friends and family, and welcome back to our midweek edition of our podcast for August 12th, 2020. You know, I'm truly blessed and highly favored. Uh, Tracy and I will be celebrating 34 years of marriage this month, 34 years. You know, God's design for the family and especially for marriage is absolutely an intelligent design. Tracy is such a blessing to me. She's such a blessing to our children and, and even to our church family. You know, I'm delighted to be Tracy's husband. You know, we've been surrendered and involved in Christian uh, full-time pastoral ministry for the last 22 years. I say we because Tracy has been there every step of the way. So of the last 22 years of ministry, 11 of those have been at Memorial. Uh, it is my fantastic joy to pastor the congregation known as Memorial Baptist Church. You know, being able to enter into the labors of others and stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us and to, to be a part of the wonderful foundation that they have laid for us is amazing. So you all are the salt of the earth and a joy to participate with and to call our church family. We are blessed and highly favored. You know, our deacons and staff met last night together online uh, for our regularly scheduled deacons meeting. We also discussed how our, our reopening is going and, and a few other things. Uh, we're planning to add another part of ministry to what we are currently doing. Uh, this Sunday, August 16th, we will add kids worship during our regular Sunday morning worship time. This will allow children's ministry to keep in contact with our children while not bringing back our full slate of ministries on, on Wednesday evening quite yet. It remains to be seen what will happen with the COVID-19 numbers when schools reconvene in person in, in the next and coming weeks. We hope to be fully functional um, in the not-too-distant future, but we're still moving forward uh, resolutely, cautiously, safely, uh, doing what we can. Uh, time will tell. Uh, we have other plans that we are working on to raise the level of ministry in our church, and we look forward to sharing those as we are able to move forward in them. Now, while no one enjoys uh, wearing a mask, or I want to please, please help us as we continue to practice protocols and social distancing. Uh, we need to be good examples and good stewards of what God has given us. Uh, please allow me to emphasize and reiterate just a few things. On Sunday mornings, we open the doors at 10.30. I'm asking everyone who is coming to worship to please wait in your vehicles until 10.30. Um, we're discouraging socializing, you know, just hanging out and visiting within the building. So if you need to visit with someone, um, invite them to your house. Call them on the phone. Go to a restaurant or go to some other place. We're trying to continue meeting without becoming a hub for the coronavirus. So let's practice our social distancing measures, wearing a mask, uh, using hand sanitizer, washing our hands often. Also, if for some reason you contract the coronavirus, please call the church office and let us know. If you test positive for COVID-19, 
Um, we need that information to figure out who else was exposed or may be infected so they can go get tested. We want to be good citizens and neighbors in doing our part to limit any spread of the virus among us. As I've said before, if you have questions or concerns, please call us. I know it's not easy for any of us. We're trying to keep our people and our most vulnerable ones safe as we open up slowly and cautiously. Again, if you have questions or concerns, please call us. Uh, Each of us should assess our own risk individually and in relation to our own families. Please exercise the freedom and the good sense to do what you need to do, extending grace to others as they do the same thing. Now, before we look at our scriptures passage for this afternoon, uh, I would like to pray together. And if you would, pray with me while, while I lead us in prayer. Loving Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you do for us every day. Thank you, Father, for being the everlasting Father, the Almighty God. Um, thank you for being the creator and sustainer of all things. We recognize that we need you. Um, Oh, how desperately we need you. Father, you've given us everything that we need for life. You've given us um, breath. You've given us provisions. You've given us salvation. You've given us eternal life. It all comes from you. And so, Father, we just pause uh, right now just to say thank you for loving us. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for guiding us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for never leaving us. Thank you for healing us. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for being our friend and our God. Lord, I want to lift up some of those that are that are struggling right now. I pray for comfort for those who are grieving. I lift up... Uh, Barbara, um, and uh, 1L, and Joel, and their family, as they um, grieve the, the loss of, of 1L's grandson, Cy. Um, I pray for his wife, Lana. I pray for their two children. I ask, Father, that you would bring comfort to them in this time. When their world seems upside down, Father, when they're mourning and things aren't right, and I I pray, Father, that just a sense of peace would come over each one of them during this time. Father, we don't have answers. They don't have answers. But, Father, we know that we can trust you. So I pray, Father, for your grace, your mercy, your peace, just to flood the Shoemate family, guide them, help them. Father, lead them. I lift up Sheila Hubbard to you. I know she's having shoulder surgery um, in the near future, This probably this next week. So I pray, Father, that you would give her your grace and your mercy, that you would give the doctors wisdom in what they are going to do and how they're going to do it. I pray for a full recovery. I pray your will. I pray, Father, that You would guide her through this time, be with Steve. I pray, Father, that it would be something that brings you glory and honor. I lift up Bill Blankenship to you and the myriad of health issues that are going on with him, Um, his diabetes, the the kidney function, 
um, all of the things that are that are going on there. So I pray, Father, that you would uh, restore each of these areas uh, in your time, and Father, by your will and by your might, Father, that you would show yourself mighty in Bill's case. I pray that also, Father, for Christy Morehouse. Father, my heart goes out to them. I pray that you would be with her and Anthony. Father, that you would be with their children and their parents. I ask God that you would just continue to show yourself mighty. I pray for a good report on the the CT scan. I pray, Father, that these treatments would accomplish the the things that they were meant to accomplish in bringing about healing in her body. I lift up Christy to you, Father. I pray your blessing upon her and Anthony. Father, I lift up Jacob to you, John Webb's nephew, uh, grandson, excuse me. I pray that you would just uh, be with him and that you would uh, touch his life and continue to give him full range of motion and healing in his body. Um, Father, in your timing, for your glory, I lift up all of the people and families that were devastated in Lebanon by the explosion last week. I ask, Father, that that you would give them uh, your grace and that you would draw them to you during this time. Father, that the believers there would be ministering to those folks. And Father, that you would give them uh, what they need in these troubling hours. Father, how devastated these families must be. Lord, your grace. Your grace is sufficient for our every need. So, Father, I pray that you would just guide us. I pray for those who are out doing disaster relief work right now. I lift up Jim and Monica and Andy Fowler and others, Father, that are out serving those in need. God, bless them. Bless them immensely, Father, for their work for you, their kingdom work, them being your hands and feet in difficult situations, helping people uh, just by feeding them and, and helping them with their laundry and doing the things that they're doing to help them get back on their feet, I pray that you would just bless them. Father, that you would give them some fruit in their labors, that they would see people coming to know you in a very personal way. What a blessing it is to see people deployed out there serving like Jim and Monica and Andy and others. Father, we are so blessed to have people in our church that want to serve. So God, I ask that you would continue to bless them. Be with our our missionaries around the world who are out there ministering to folks and sharing the good news. I pray for the persecuted church around the world that is being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. I ask, Father, that you would do something, that you would just give them strength and that, that we uh, would have a full knowledge of, of your will for our lives. And Father, that we in our moment, in our hour of persecution would not shrink back, but Father, that we would be all in with you and Lord Jesus, that you would be our Savior and Lord all the way to the end. Father, help us to persevere. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that you would be with our Bible Lesson, as we look into your word, I pray that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, that, that you indeed would be our, our teacher and our guide. And uh, Father, we're going to be very careful to give you the praise 
and the glory and the honor for everything you do. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, years ago, I, I remember the gore of Mel Gibson's movie, The, the Passion of Christ. There was lots and lots of gore, you know, blood gushing and literally fountains of blood everywhere. Seemingly endless torture, which was very hard to watch. It's, it's, as a human being, it's hard to watch other human beings uh, being tortured. And that was incredibly hard to watch. And I remember one guy left as the scourging was happening and he came back 10 minutes later and the flogging was still going on. You know, some critics, they referred to it as a, a holy slasher movie. And the movie was among probably the most violent ever made. You know, in the public's mind, Jesus represents nonviolence. We have his famous teaching on turning the other cheek. You know, we remember his healing of the guard's ear at his arrest. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. We also have his forgiveness of his crucifiers. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. But his message has produced such incredible violence also. His own violent death on the cross. I mean, think about that for just a moment. Crucified on a Roman cross, spear in the side, nails in the hands and feet, crown of thorns on a Roman cross. Then there was the brutal persecution of early Christians for claiming to know Christ, for claiming to belong to Christ. They were brutally um, persecuted. Then there was the brutal persecution uh, by later Christians. Jewish anxiety about the Passion film has a long heritage. I mean, many of the Passion plays in the Middle Ages ended in violence. And the blood, their blood has been upon their heads. And think about the Crusades and, and even the Inquisition. You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, he said, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Christians since Paul's day somewhat seem to have preferred the world's way. Violence is evil, but it is reality. The passion of Jesus really happened. Maybe not exactly like the film, but Jesus did die a violent death. See, violence in our world is a continuing reality. Maybe it takes violence to end violence. But understand this, the violence of the cross served a purpose. Sin requires sacrifice. A price must be paid. Sacrifices had to be costly, not free. A substitution must be made. You know, in the Old Testament, an animal took the sinner's place. This was imperfect and had to be repeated continually. See, the Old Testament has many examples of blood sacrifices. There were blood sacrifices offered in order to cleanse the sanctuary. There was blood sacrifices offered to cleanse the priests. 
On the Day of Atonement, there was sacrifice made for the nation. There was also a sacrifice made when a community or person sinned unintentionally. So the, the summary in Hebrews, we find in chapter 9, verse 22, and it says, Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no remission of sin. And the New Testament upholds that same principle because Jesus' death was an atoning death. He took our place, yours and mine. He paid our penalty. He understood this and taught it to his followers. He made it the focus of the Last Supper. See, as a sacrifice, Jesus is different. His was a single sacrifice, once for all. It does not need to be repeated, and indeed cannot be. It cleanses our sins, and it even cleanses our consciences. Brothers and sisters, you need the blood. You need the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, in our passage tonight, in in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and following, we notice some features of the new covenant described. I mean, the writer of Hebrews has talked about um, the the tabernacle and the, 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 how the old and new covenant and, 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 and such up through verse 10 in chapter 9, as we, we, as we talked about last week. But I want to begin reading, and I want to read in verse 11 of chapter 9 of Hebrews. It says this. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify and the cleansing of flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. 
And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So as we look at the this passage, you know, the 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 features of the new covenant are described. And and in verse 11 it says the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not made with hands. See, it says there that the author here here he proceeds to demonstrate that Jesus was a high priest of a temple not made with hands. So in contrast to the old covenant priest who ministered in an earthly temple, the author of Hebrews says, let me tell you, Jesus was a high priest of a heavenly temple. So you see, there is the superiority of his ministry, not an earthly temple, but a heavenly temple. Jesus, as our high priest, ministers in a superior sanctuary, the very throne room of God. This is obviously a place greater than anything human hands could ever make. It says that he is a mediator in verse 15, and I want to touch on that for just a moment. I'm not ready to move on to verse 15, but I just want to touch on it. See, a mediator comes between estranged parties and works to effect their reconciliation. A mediator is someone who stands in the gap and brings both sides together. That's what a mediator does. So the very presence of a mediator implies that there is estrangement, that there is need for reconciliation. So throughout this passage, throughout all of Hebrews, the underlying assumption is that we are estranged from God because of sin and there needs to be mediation. Somebody needs to mediate this because we cannot come to God on our own. Now it says that he entered the holy place once for all. Hmm. Jesus entered the better holy place. You know, in the, in the old covenant, the holy place was on earth, while the, the believer's holy place is now in heaven. And the old covenant holy place was made with human hands. But the believers is a more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. (laughs) And it talks in this passage about the superior sacrifice of the new covenant. Look at verse 12. And he says, he entered into the blood, into the holy place, into the heavenly temple, not by the blood of animals, but by his own blood. Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all. So that's the second way that he's superior. He did not have to offer sacrifices other than the sacrifice of himself. It was by his own blood, by his own merit, that Jesus entered that temple. The author is showing the complete supremacy how far beyond in the finality of the blood of Christ over the whole entire old system. See, through his death, our guilt is atoned once for all and for all eternity. The penalty has been paid. Hallelujah. (laughs) There is nothing that we can add to what Christ has already done. His finished work on the cross. Through him, we have direct access to God. See, our enemy, the devil, Satan, 
not only must respect the blood of Christ shed on Calvary's cross, but also he is helpless against it. Christ's blood represents the sacrifice of one whose death removed the guilt and the condemnation of our sin and broke its hold, its power over us. It is absolute protection against the accusation of Satan, against the defeating remembrances of past sin and the downpool of our nature from Adam. See, no wonder we as believers glory in the cross of Jesus. Oh, it is the power of salvation, the blood of Jesus Christ. So we're also told in verse 12 that his sacrifice was not repetitious, that it was once for all. I love this because it talks about the the blood of goats and calves. See, animal sacrifice was sufficient for a temporary covering of sin, but only a perfect sacrifice could obtain eternal redemption. That's what it says in verse 12. Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus' sacrifice was superior in that it was perfect, it was voluntary, it was rational and motivated by love. And it actually obtained eternal redemption. Now and forever. But the key thing here that I look at is that with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all. See, at the tabernacle, the sacrifice was made outside the veil at the altar. But the atoning blood was brought into the most holy place, which represents the throne of God. In the same pattern, Jesus had to die here, outside heaven, and among sinful men. But the payment his death made had to be satisfied in heaven itself. See, the work of atonement is done, and therefore, praise the Lord, It cannot be undone. You remember over and over in this passage how the author says the very repetition of those sacrifices and what they did every year. It reminded those who went to Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement that they needed forgiveness of sin and that they had to do it year after year after year after year. And so the author says that the Old Testament system, though it was designed by God's grace, And we're going to see that in a few moments. It was not able to give you the kind of full assurance that only trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ can give you. Because every year you had to be reminded that you needed forgiveness of sins. Whereas we who live under the glories of the new covenant have a once for all sacrifice and there is nothing more coming back to us to say, now there has to be another sacrifice offered this year in order that you could be right with God. And another sacrifice offered next year so that you could be right with God. It doesn't work that way. Jesus Christ offered himself once for all, the perfect sacrifice. That's why we glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. It says he entered the most holy place. The high priest entered once a year, going through the veil and back again, letting the veil fall behind him as he left. And the barrier remained. Jesus tore the veil and stays in the most holy place, heaven itself welcoming us in. This is what makes Christianity all about access, not barriers. 
I love this because it says with his own blood. See, blood in the scripture always includes the two thoughts of a death suffered, but also a life offered. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come to earth to make a reconciliation by the holiness of his life or by the earnestness of his teaching, but by his death. See, the Lord Jesus did not bring before God the sufferings of others or the merits of others, but his own life and his own death. So all these things are piled up here in in verse 12. Through the blood of the goats and calves and through his own, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, in verse 13 and 14, um, it goes on, and um, the author argues that if the blood of bulls and goats, all those sacrifices in the Old Covenant, if they had, in fact, been able to forgive sins in and of themselves, then the death of Christ would not have been necessary. But the fact that he is offered as the sacrifice shows us the ability of his sacrificial death to cleanse our consciences. So in verse 13 it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, um, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ? See, if these imperfect sacrifices were received as sufficient by Israel, then they should much more regard the ultimate sufficiency of the perfect sacrifice. See, the ashes of a heifer refer to the remains of a burnt offering that was preserved, those ashes. And the ashes were sprinkled in the laver, the the washing area, uh, to provide water suitable for ceremonial cleansing. Verse 14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient to even restore our damaged conscience. See, our, our conscience is a wonderful tool from God, but it isn't perfect. Our conscience can be seared, according to 1 Timothy 4.2. See, our conscience can be defiled, according to Titus 1.15. Our conscience can be evil, according to Hebrews 10.22. But the blood of Christ can cleanse your conscience from dead works. Now, the idea behind dead works is probably of sin in general in the, the sense of works that bring death. Um, but it must also speak of the vain continuation of old covenant sacrifice, which is certainly a dead work. I mean, when you think about what they did now, now that Jesus has come, that would be a dead work if we still had to go back and sacrifice animals. The very type of thing these discouraged Jewish Christians who the writer was writing to were tempted to go back and do those dead works. See, Christ redeems and cleanses us from dead works to serve the living God. See, some Christians serve God in an attempt to maybe pacify their guilty conscience. It makes them feel good or that kind of thing. 
they erroneously think, well, if I do enough for him, maybe he will forgive me. Folks, that's the wrong motive. Others mistakenly think that God forgives them so that they can feel good. You know, their focus is on themselves, not on God or on others. Again, that's a wrong focus. See, the proper order is that God has forgiven me by His grace through the precious blood of His Son. So now, I'm free to serve Him. There's kind of three senses here in which the works of those who have not trusted in the blood of Christ are dead works. Now, first, I would say this. I would say they are dead works because the one doing them is dead in his sins, separated from the life of God. So they're, they're dead works because they're, they're doing them because, while they're dead in their sins. Secondly, they are dead works because they are essentially sterile and unproductive. I mean, they cannot communicate spiritual life to others because they stem from a person who's spiritually dead. So they're dead works. And third, I would say they're dead works because they end up in spiritual death. A person does them thinking that they will earn him eternal life. But if eternal life could come through our good works, then Christ died needlessly. And no amount of good works can qualify a person for heaven. But understand this, the believer is cleansed, conscience and all, not to live unto himself, but to serve the living God. I mean, keep in mind that you are, from now on, after the blood of Christ in your life, to serve the living God. You that are acquainted with the Greek will find that the the kind of service here mentioned is not that which the slave or servant renders to his master, but a worshipful service such as the priest rendered unto God. The Greek word translated serve here is lutreu, lutreu. And it speaks of religious or ceremonial uh, priestly service, that kind of service. We are to minister unto God. We that have been purged by Christ, they've been plunged beneath that fountain of blood, are to render to God the worship of a royal priesthood. And it's ours to present prayers and thanksgivings and sacrifice. It's ours to offer the incense of intercession for others. It is ours to light the lamp of testimony and, and to furnish the table with showbread. Oh, that is our, our joy to serve Almighty God and Everlasting Father. See, this is the flow of argument that the writer of Hebrews presents, and then you run into the words in verse 15, coming back to it, and he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. Jesus' work as a mediator is fundamentally accomplished at his death. Oh, his heavenly work of mediation looks back at that perfect sacrifice. So, So do you follow the line of thought? In light of all that, of those things, he is the mediator of a new covenant. That is the basis and expression of Christ's 
mediatorship in the new covenant is his sacrificial death. Okay? The reason he's the mediator is because he died. It was his own blood. Through his sacrificial death, the promises of the new covenant covenant have been brought about. Now remember, if you will, when Jesus was explaining to his disciples the meaning of his death on the night of his crucifixion, what words did he take them back to? We know from Matthew and Mark that he took them back to Exodus 24. He said, this is the blood of the covenant. We know from Luke and from Paul that he took back them back to Jeremiah 31. This is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus takes the disciples right where the author of Hebrews takes them to explain his death. If you want to understand my death, you need to understand that my death is the thing that brings about the promises which God prophesied hundreds of years ago through Jeremiah and through Isaiah and through Ezekiel and even all the way back to Moses. My death brings about those promises. Wow. That's what it means that I'm the mediator of the new covenant. I'm bringing about all of those promises that were brought about way back then for the redemption of the transgressions under the new covenant. You see, Jesus' payment on the cross accomplished redemption for those under the first covenant. Every sacrifice for sin made in faith under the Mosaic command was an IOU paid in full at the cross. That's fantastic. How wonderful, how marvelous. And now we look at verse 16 through 22, and it talks about the necessity of Jesus' death. Verse 16 says, For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. You know, the testament, if you will, the, the will, the testament, in a sense, the last will and testament, only takes effect when the person who made that testament dies. So Jesus had to die for the testament, the covenant, to take effect. The same word in the Greek is used for covenant and testament, and they're interchangeable. And although the double use is difficult, there seems to be no doubt in verse 15 that the word means covenant. And in verses 16 and 17, testament And then in verse 18, covenant again, okay? So if there's a question about whether a man is alive or not, you cannot administer his estate. But when you have certain evidence that the testator has died, then the will stands. It's like that with the wonderful gospel. If Jesus did not die, then the gospel is null and void. But because he has died, And because it was his own blood, that testament is in full effect. Verse 18 says, Therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood, not inaugurated without blood. Clearly death was necessary 
to the Old Covenant. Virtually every part of the sacrificial system under the law of Moses was touched by blood in some way or another. It says, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is foundational principle of God's dealings with men, with people. Modern people think that sin is remitted or forgiven by time or by our good works, or by our decent lives, or or simply by our dying. But there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, and there is no perfect forgiveness without a perfect sacrifice. The concept of blood was not foreign to the Old Covenant or Mosaic Law, for when the Mosaic Law was given, the tablets and the people Those entering into that covenant were sprinkled with blood and water. Exodus 24.8 is quoted to show the importance of animal blood in the Mosaic system. This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Even the tabernacle, which had its authorization from the Mosaic law, and the various pieces of furniture in the tabernacle were sprinkled with blood. Anything that sinful men are connected with must be cleansed by blood. See, verse 22 says, And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This verse states unequivocally that there can be no forgiveness of sins by God without the shedding of blood. If a person shuns the blood of Christ as repugnant, then he shuns salvation. Salvation is only for those who are bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ, washed in the blood. See, the shedding of Jesus' blood is God's answer to man's problem, humanity's sin problem. You know, in his sermon, The Bloodshedding, Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he began by showing us three fools. He said the first fool is a soldier wounded on the field of battle. And the medic comes to the soldier, and immediately the soldier wants to know everything about the rifle and the soldier who shot him. That's the first fool. The second fool is a ship captain whose ship is about to go under in a terrible storm, and the captain is not at the wheel of the ship, trying to guide it through the crashing waves, but he's up in his room studying charts, trying to determine where the storm came from. The third fool is a man who is sick and dying without sin, about to go under the waves of God's justice, yet is deeply troubled about the origin of evil. Folks, we should look to the solution more than to the problem. You know, during the hundred or excuse me, thousand plus years of the Old Covenant, there were more than a million animal sacrifices. So considering that each bull's sacrifice spilled a gallon or two of blood, and each goat maybe a quart or two, the Old Covenant truly rested on a sea of blood. You know, during the Passover, a trough was 
constructed from the temple down towards the Kidron Valley for the disposal of blood. I want to call it a sacrificial plumbing system, if you will, so that the flow of blood would flow away from the temple. Jesus' blood should arrest our attention. We should be cut to the heart and say, it cost that to forgive my sin. As we wrap this up, you know the song, nothing but the blood of Jesus is true. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know, after the Passion movie, many Christian people that I know, and even I myself, were visibly moved. One guy came up to me with tears in his eyes. He said, Pastor, every morning I tell my wife that I love her. Now, I need to say the same thing to Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, do you love what Jesus did for you? He paid the price. He sacrificed his own blood so that you would have access to God. I want to thank you so much for tuning in tonight, this afternoon. You know, next week we'll continue our study in the book of Hebrews. And until we see each other, stay safe, practice good hygiene, stay studied up in God's Word. I want to say eat well, but be sure you're getting some exercise out there. And whatever you do, give God all the praise and the glory and the honor that is due His name. Oh, what a Savior we have in Jesus. I hope to see all of you real soon. God bless you.